Statistical Society Flight Test Group lecture um, for September. My name is Rob Boyle. I'm the chairman of the Flight Test Committee um, here at Hamilton Place. Um, so we've got a great lecture on for you tonight. Uh, the fight, just before we start, some admin. If you've got a mobile phone, please switch it off. There are no fire alarm tests planned at all this evening. So if an alarm goes off, please run bravely behind me through that door. Or there's exits at the back as well. Um, and please don't leave any bags or anything like that unattended in the building, and it's a no-smoking building. So, on to the main event. Um, this evening we've got a great lecture titled Revolutionising uh, Stovall Flight Control for the Joint Strike Fighter. Justin Paynes entered the Royal Air Force in uh, 1988, joining the Harrier Force in 1990. After a long tour of number one fighter squadron, including operational duties over, over northern Iraq, he completed test pilot school at Edwards Air Force Base, flying all the main US fighter types and several historic aircraft over that year. He joined Boscombe Down as a test pilot on the experimental VAAC VAC Harrier program and also flew the test program in the GR7 and T10 Hawk and Tucano aircraft. He returned to the, uh, to the US to join the Joint Strike Fighter program and flew the X-35A BNC experimental aircraft. After a tour as an instructor on ETPS, he left the Royal Air Force and joined Kinetic, once again flying the VAC Harrier program, developing advanced control concepts for the F-35B Stovall aircraft and innovating landing technologies for the Queen Elizabeth class carrier. Justin Paynes rejoined ETPS in 2009, where he now serves as the Chief Flying Instructor on Fixed Wing. Justin. Thanks, Rob. <coughs> You'll have to excuse me if I croak very slightly. I'm recovering from, uh, from a dose of the lurgy. Uh, and if we could have my slides up, please. Thank you. The um, talk tonight, I've been talking to some of you uh, just out in tea, is almost as much a human story as it is a flight test story. And I hope I can do it justice because it is a most extraordinary uh, tale of uh, emotional um, intervention in, 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 in what should be a clinical scientific process and uh, programmatic uh, ins and outs and shenanigans which um, has actually been fascinating and uh, it's uh, been quite interesting putting this talk together and actually going back um, to the beginning of my flight test career in, in 1996 and, and trying to um, reach into different parts of my hard drive that haven't been accessed for a long time and find their videos and the images and so on. And I hope that I've been able to do it justice because it's a very long and complex subject and, and I could probably talk for far longer than I've got available tonight. And so the, the challenge for me has been to compact it without leaving out the interesting parts. So I hope I've done so. Uh, the overview then tonight, I'll cover a little bit of the history and background and, and why this research started. Uh, where it came from, some of the early work that was done in advanced stable flight control, um, and then the, uh, the lost period, uh, which I'll, uh, I'll describe to you, in our, which was our research really between 1996 and 1999, uh, before we re-entered the mainstream and um, developed a uh, uh, radical flight control concept um, for the Joint Strike Fighter, uh, which was adopted. And then I'll ask the question, and this is the key question I think now, which we can answer now, um, 10 years, 11 years after the decision is, were we right? And uh, I hope um, that you will, as I say, get some flavour for this extraordinary uh, story, programmatic story, over that period of time. History and background, very briefly, you're all well aware that the UK has a huge heritage in uh, VTOL and uh, VSTOL, 
and um, I don't wish to go too far back into uh, how the Harrier emerged, but suffice it to say that uh, we produced in the Harrier an extraordinarily successful uh, aircraft, really the only one in the world, Yak-38 aside, and I don't think it really compares, the only successful uh, V-STOL flighter ever produced until the F-35B. Uh, a real uh, inspiration, uh, inspired engineering back in the 50s and, and 60s, uh, more particularly. Uh, just one extra lever, uh, and John, it's great to see you here, and this is the quote from you, just one extra lever in the cockpit is all you need to fly the Harrier, uh, which was truly a remarkable achievement for the time. But there were some uh, inevitable compromises, not only in the airframe, and, and, and aerodynamicists could talk to you about that forever, of course, but in the flight control strategy. Um, the pilot clearly had independent control, manual control of thrust and thrust vector, uh, and the reaction controls uh, controlled through the stick, and it was comparatively a high workload airplane to fly. And there was a risk of pilot errors, pilot cognitive errors. And here's one right here. The aircraft you see in this uh, video is entirely serviceable until the point where the pilot pulls the handle. Completely serviceable, functional aircraft. Pure pilot error. See it again here. Experienced pilot, airshow pilot, uh, serviceable aeroplane, uh, one broken ankle because he landed on the wreckage, and uh, one Cat 5 Harrier. So, accident rate. We have an accident rate historically in the Harrier of around about, if you look at the takeoff and landing regime alone, around about an order of magnitude higher than, than conventional types uh, Phantom, Jaguar, Tornado. Order of magnitude higher take, uh, takeoff and landing accident rate. We have a training burden. Um, if you compare the Harrier ACU that once about an eight month conversion from Hawk to the Harrier, compare that to uh, four or five months for the Jaguar, an aircraft at the time with a, a very similar role. Uh, and the Delta was the extra time required to essentially teach a pilot to fly in a very different way. Uh, we have operational limitations. You compare the weather minima for the Harrier with that of the helicopters, particularly at sea. Uh, quite a big delta there. The Harrier was, was more constrained by weather because of the uh, workload in the cockpit, uh, and particularly at night and so on, with reduced visual cues. And a performance margin. Everything's flown manually, um, not going to be flown perfectly, and therefore we have compromised uh, pilot control strategies and reduced performance. And, of course, pilot selection constraints. We couldn't really afford to send weaker pilots from the training system to the Harrier. But looking to the future... Um, we saw the next generation of Stovall aircraft likely to be even more complicated, where manual control of thrust and thrust vector were unlikely to be possible mechanically. Um, and therefore, there was a desire to look at what we could do in flight control. And the US-UK Joint Aeronautical Program, I, I forget the date it started, it was before my time, uh, sometime in the mid to late 1980s, I believe, uh, RAE Bedford and NASA Ames were the lead establishments working uh, this program, uh, sharing data and so on. But there were markedly different uh, approaches taken to the research. For NASA, the philosophy was that augmentation had to buy its way into the aircraft. The Harrier was basically fine, except where you needed augmentation. Day VFR, there was no problem with the Harrier, was their perspective. Uh, and therefore, there was no point in changing the flight controls. Let's keep it simple, because augmentation costs money, uh, was their philosophy. Um, and therefore, following that train of thought, it was only really required for the day-night all-weather, the, you know, the night-poor-weather case, that they needed to look at augmentation at all. <coughs> 
I don't believe it was the right approach for the reasons I've just covered. And it was bound, taking that, that, uh, that, that set of assumptions was bound to lead to a very different uh, direction in the research taken, and indeed it did. And where NASA got to at the outset of the JSF program, so we're talking the period around about 1996 now, JAST, Joint Affordable Strike Technology, Technology Program, had turned into the Joint Strike Fighter Program. Uh, NASA had proposed a um, mode-selectable augmentation. So you flew basically a Harrier-type control system, manual thrust control, manual thrust uh, angle control, and um, attitude of one sort or another on, on the stick. Uh, and then when you were making your approach at 10 miles or downwind, you would punch a button which would take you into approach mode, and then the augmentation was added into the aircraft. And essentially the throttle now was a closed-loop throttle. So instead of the throttle just being pure thrust, the throttle was flight path, or as you came to the hover, the throttle was height or height rate. So they augmented the throttle to turn it into flight path or height rate. Uh, and they added a thumb wheel on the throttle for axel and deceleration control. So you can think of that thumb wheel as an augmented nozzle lever, if you like. Instead of just giving you a, a fixed nozzle angle, it gave you a, a fixed rate of deceleration or acceleration. Um, and the stick was, was conventional but, but, but augmented. Uh, attitude control, you know, flight path control at high speed, blending to attitude control at low speed. Uh, we assessed it in 1997, myself and Paul Stone, uh, and actually it was a, a, a beautiful piece of engineering. It was uh, really, really well put together. Uh, very, very professional job. But it was modally complex. You had to press buttons to select modes. You, uh, you had to know which mode you were in. Uh, if you were halfway on the approach and then you had to wave off, then, then clearly there was a whole range of issues there. You had to come out of approach mode if you were going to wave off. The UK approach, on the other hand, was very different. And you can see how that NASA approach led from their, their starting position. The UK decided more or less to take a blank sheet of paper. And uh, the Vector Thrust Aircraft Advanced Flight Control, if you've ever wanted to know what the acronym is for, um, there's a spare T and a spare F in there that you just spell them lowercase and then you can miss them out from the acronym. Um, and that was, of course, based at Bedford. Uh, the uh, X-ray Whiskey 175 had done a lot of work on the Sea Harrier development with Madge and Nozzle Nudge and, and, and some of those developments there and the Ski Jump as well. Um, and our research more or less came out of that and it was an ongoing uh, development from work that had been done in the 70s and, and John was just telling me that uh, he'd been to the first ever meeting for this program in 1970. Is that correct, John? Yes. 1970. So Sea uh, Harrier work in the 70s and then leading into uh, a very radical approach. And the radical approach doesn't actually sound that radical because if I push forward with my left hand, I go faster. If I pull back with my left hand, I slow down. If I pull back with my right hand, I go up and the cows get smaller. And if I push forward, the cows get bigger. And if that sounds familiar, uh, clearly it is familiar. What was radical is that we take this now from 500 knots all the way to the hover. So when I'm in the hover and I push forward on the stick, the engine winds back and I start going down. And that, that radical aspect of it, in terms of what's happening to the airframe, when, remember, the pilot community have been brought up with manually controlling the throttle and manually controlling the thrust vector, that's why it was radical. If you stop and stand back from it, it you know, as we started, cows get smaller, cows get bigger, it's not radical. And, and John, you call it normal mode, I think, in fact, uh, rather than unified mode. But what was radical is what was going on with the aircraft. And some people didn't like it. One thing that we were agreed on, though, both the US and the UK, was looking at the uh, response type. So when a pilot made an input, you wanted to give him the right kind of response. 
uh, in general, whatever way he was controlling those uh, output variables, you wanted to give him direct control of the output variables and make them decouple. And what I mean by that is, if the pilot commanded to go faster, you didn't want him to balloon. Now, a conventional airplane, you put the power up, not only do you go faster, but you also tend to, tend to go up as the angle of attack reduces. Um, you want to decouple those axes. Give the pilot the ability to make a correction in one axis without it affecting the other axis. Uh, speed or axle, flight path, flight path rate, those are the things he's trying to control. So give him control of those things. Don't give him a thrust controller. Give him a speed controller or an axle controller. And he's going to find it much easier. And um, that was well established through this early period of work. Uh, translational rate command was where if I push the control one inch, I get one knot. If I push the control two inches, I get two knots. And I get it in the direction that I push the controller. Translational rate command, obviously very different in the Harrier where I move the stick and I open the reaction control uh, valve and I get a rate of acceleration in roll or pitch proportional to my stick movement. So translational rate command was also um, uh, developed by NASA. And here you see some of the results. And I promise I'm not going to show many uh, charts of results. But Cooper Harper handling qualities rating scale, for those of you uh, not in flight test, one is very, very good. 10 is uh, uncontrollable. And uh, we're looking here at the results for three control modes. Translational rate command, uh, basic acceleration command, which is like an augmented Harrier, and attitude rate command, which is more like a Harrier. And we see that the handling qualities get worse and worse as we go from large pad to ship to increasing sea state. Um, but look how much better translational rate command is, even in higher sea states on ship. This was a simulator-based study, but uh, a very well-respected one, which, which showed the improvements that you could get by giving the pilot decoupled axes and the right kind of response uh, to his inputs. So that's the background of where we were in about 1996. Uh, and that's where it started to become a strongly, strongly emotional debate. Um, and it's based on the paradigm, uh, essentially, of, of the Harrier before with manual control of those uh, effectors. Um, many people born and bred in that, in that regime could not move on or would not move on or would not accept that this advanced Brit proposal uh, had any merit. And um, the opinion was, was largely divided, actually, across national lines, transatlantic divide. Um, made worse when the U.S. center team, the JSF program office center team, to evaluate Unified in the Bedford simulator, and they slammed it. They absolutely slammed it. And the reason is, um, what they, there was nothing wrong with what they wrote. What was wrong was their, their test objectives. They thought it was a finished product. They thought they could go in and do you know, tactical strip short takeoffs with Unified mode, but it was a research control law that had been de developed from, uh, for approach and landing. And so there was a big uh, mismatch between what the evaluators came in to look at and what the control law had, at that stage had actually been designed to do. And so as a result of that, we had, as it says there, irreconcilable differences between the official positions, the government positions, if you like, of uh, <coughs> the US and the UK. And of course, the contractors, you, you can't blame them. Uh, naturally, the contractors were going to favor the US government position. So all but lost. And uh, as I took over in 1996, I remember my predecessor saying, you know, we have lost. Um, there's nothing we can do. But actually what he meant uh, was that we'd lost the debate for the concept demonstration phase for the Joint Strike Fighter, the X program. And, and indeed we had. Um, and the US really weren't interested in what we were doing at that stage. They'd, they'd palmed us off and they'd moved on. Uh, the JSF contractors, of course, were moving on fast with their X-plane development, and uh, they had totally dismissed Unified, of course, by this stage. 
NASA's research program was complete. They, they, more, they were asking for more money. They didn't, in, in fact, get it, sadly. Uh, and so th their work in this area was, was wrapped up. However, our research program was not complete. And uh, fortunately, it was the day when uh, the MOD put money into research. Uh, An applied research program was funding the VARC for the next three years, uh, up until 1999. Uh, a significant commitment by the MOD in, in research money. You know, flight experimentation is not cheap, as you well know. And uh, so we were able to take the debate forward. And this is what we did. Uh, the VARC, um, many of you probably know a little bit about it already. Some of you know a lot about it, uh, since I see some, uh, some colleagues in the audience here. Uh, safety pilot in the front cockpit. So the safety pilot had normal Harrier controls. Uh, the rear cockpit was where the experimental work went on. And so the rear cockpit was digital fly-by-wire. Uh, and we had uh, what's called an independent monitor, an independent safety device, which meant that the flight control software we flew uh, was not safety critical. Not much to see on the surface of the airplane. This is the rear cockpit as it was back then. Later we fitted a uh, side stick. But back then we had a, um, a center stick that was an old EAP center stick, so it was a variable field. We could, we could change the springs and detents and so on in it and, and make it uh, fit our, our field characteristics that we wanted. Uh, we had a configurable left inceptor. We could put different things in here. Um, you see Harrier controls in this particular image, but we, we could put other things in there as we saw fit. Uh, and as I've just mentioned, non-safety critical flight control software. We, I mean, towards the end of the program, modern process caught up with us, you know, nugatory process later. But at the time, uh, in the 90s, uh, we could quite easily be flying a sortie, come up with some, some issues that we wanted fixed, uh, land, and while uh, a couple of us had a cup of coffee, uh, Glenn would be under the wing of the aircraft with his laptop, uploading some new software, and we'd walk back out and go and fly it. Now, any flight control engineer involved in conventional flight control development would, 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 would give his right arm for that kind of flexibility. Literally, in a matter of half an hour, we could fix a problem, go back up and try it. Not only that, we had the ability to change gains deep within the control law, feedback gains, for example, uh, live, in flight, with the software engaged. So you could, for example, sit in the hover, software engaged, and you could wind up one of the feedback gains until you just started to see a bit of instability, and then you could back it off a little bit. And, and no, no Bodhi pots needed. That, that was it tuned uh, to perfection. Is that right, Nasha? Uh, I mean, we could literally make such fast progress with, this, with the flexibility that this aircraft gave us. And uh, the ability to do that was absolutely essential because of the magnitude of the task we had to face us. And the magnitude of the task was that it was all very well us pottering along and doing some nice research and having some fun flying around. But unless the work we did found its way into a program, we might as well not bother. You know, we might as well go to the pub at lunch every day. Um, so we had to do two things. Not only did we have to conduct our research uh, on reasonably tight timescales, but we realized that we had to win the debate. Uh, we had to uh, win the US over to uh, accept and endorse whatever we found. And so there was a dual pro and This is the, where we start now to get into the human side of this story. There was a, there was, there was a dual requirement. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, there was also a big challenge in 1996. The airplane had just come out of refit, which I don't really have time to talk about. Uh, in getting the airplane ready and up to speed, um, you know, they, they talk, don't they, in show business about, show business about never working with, with children and animals. Well, in flight tests, never work with flight hardware um, because you know 
it's going to take you about three times as long to do anything as, as you first imagine. And uh, it is a challenge. Um, safety software, the independent monitor that I mentioned that, that provides a safety blanket. It, it not only provides envelope protection, but also monitors for system uh, failures. Uh, most things were duplex, and so if there was an A versus B um, uh, miscompare, then the independent monitor would hand control back to the safety pilot. Well, the envelope protection side of it essentially meant we had to do a full envelope expansion program in the VSTOL regime. I'll just give you an example of it here. One of the videos I managed to dig out from the past. Hard reading as good as usual, 670 JPT. Okay, fairly aggressive band and a little bit of size for it. That's the disconnect tone. What you can see is we're doing about 60 knots. That's airspeed, ground speed. So about 60 knots. We're at about 1,200 feet over the airfield, um, which is about as high as we could get at that speed with the fuel we had. Flight path vector there. And I'm about to put yes, a full pro spin input, left, negative spin. Yeah, starting to the right and then over to the left. You watch yeah. the yaw. <laughs> and then the bunt. So it's getting a little bit of yaw rate one way, then reversing it to get the aircraft really swinging, and then bunting uh, full nose down. And uh, a very large test matrix to go through all the different permutations and combinations until we could assure ourselves that the independent monitor was going to protect us from, um, from anything going wrong with the, with the flight control software. And there's 101 stories I could tell you about, uh, about that work and, uh, um, and, uh, and colleagues who refused to fly with me and... Uh, and burning up engines in two sorties and all kinds of stuff, which sadly we don't have time for. Um, but we spent countless hours, so I'm jumping ahead slightly, countless hours brainstorming what could be done with a stable flight control. How are we going to do it? Uh, what were the options available? And um, we had to satisfy those, those two requirements. One, we wanted to decouple the axes. And secondly, we obviously needed to somehow join forward flight to hovering flight. And there really are only three options, with a, a fourth being manual control, where, where the, the, the human being does all the, all the blending. But the three options we came up with were, first of all, uh, we make the pilot make a conscious mode change. And, and NASA's solution had that, as I mentioned. You get to 10 miles on the approach, and you, and you press approach mode. <clears throat> we decided to do it not there, but uh, later on, where you, where you go from wingborne flight to hovering flight. <coughs> Excuse me. Second one is unified mode that we've already talked about. And the third one, the third option is, is where if you introduce an extra inceptor, a redundant inceptor, you have the ability to blend while still preserving decoupled axes. And without going into lots of details, which I could do about this, I'll, I'll skip that, but I, I have them available for questions if you want. Uh, I can assure you there aren't any other solutions than those three broad categories. Um, but please do give it some thought and we can debate it later. Uh, it is very, very difficult to give you all the ins and outs, and you know, we, we literally spent countless hours brainstorming these areas, and what ifs, and what about if the le this lever did that, and the stick did the other, and at 70 knots this happened, and, and uh, we went through everything. And actually, one of the frustrations later was whenever a new pilot or a new engineer came into the program uh, years later who hadn't been through this, they'd always think they had it all sewn up. But, but no, we don't want to do that, and, and, you know, and then there'd be this process of, of education. Oh, I see. You know. And um, uh, it was, it was a, a, constant, a constant frustration as we went, uh, went through the years ahead. Um, we managed to, to do it. We managed to develop the candidate control solutions for a, uh, I've called it, and it was indeed a landmark trial in 1999 at Boscombe Down. Uh, it was a very large trial. We had nine pilots. Um, we flew 65 sorties, including some for mills. 
Um, every pilot had a day in the simulator to get familiarized with the concepts and practice them. Uh, they had a dedicated familiarization sortie in the airplane with no flight tests required, and then, of course, detailed briefings, uh, prescribed questionnaires, and so on. It was a very, very elaborate time. We, we really wanted to leave no stone unturned because we wanted the data to stick. We didn't want someone to look at the data and say, ah, oh, yes, but, you know, you didn't do this, so that data's not very robust. Um, we also uh, developed a, um, a task that was designed to test unified. Uh, it would have been very easy to make the, tri the uh, task, but we come around here, round finals, decelerate, straight deceleration over the runway at Boscombe Down, there's a cross runway, hover there, initial gross hover acquisition, and then a 45-degree translation to the pad and a vertical landing on the pad. Now, um, UK practice was, was, was to do 90-degree translation. So at the ship, you'd come alongside the ship, and then you go 90 degrees. But a 45-degree translation was going to test unified more. Again, we wanted to, we were playing to the audience to a little bit to make sure the, the data was robust. So what did we find? Well, in short, uh, unified was favored, but there were still issues and concerns uh, over it, uh, principally relating to hover control. Because in the hover, in the Harrier or a helicopter, you've got a single lever that goes you know, X and Y, go forward, go back, go left, go right. So on one, in one hand, you can control your position in the hover. Now, unified doesn't have that, because I go forward and back here, and I go left and right here. And again, for uh, people steeped in Harrier traditions, this was uh, anathema. Um, fusion mode, which was the redundant inceptor mode, where we have a blended change from forward flight to hover, tended to create modal confusion. Pilots weren't fully aware where they were in the blend and therefore what response they were going to get from the stick or the throttle. Um, and, you know, if, you, if you're at 40 knots, you're going to get a very different response from at 80 knots. If I pull back on the stick at 80 knots, I go up. If I pull back on the stick at 40 knots, I slow down. And so there was a very different um, response, and people got confused. So it's dubbed confusion mode. But it was considered to have potential. Translational rate command that I mentioned and showed you those colored graphs uh, was endorsed as, as simplicity itself. Very, very easy to fly. And uh, stick TRC, I TRC control on the stick. And again, we've got an XY controller here. So I push the stick a, a, an inch for one knot, two inches for two knots, and left and right, forward and back was the best. But we could also implemented TRC on the slewer, on a weapons cursor slew, because unified mode, of course, we can't do stick TRC because forward and back is up and down. So if we wanted translational rate command with unified mode, we thought, we had to put it on a separate device like the weapons cursor slew. Every fighter has a slew controller on the throttle for, for weapons and uh, radar and so on. So that's what we did. And that also produced uh, very good level one uh, results in general. Uh, some of the other modes were, were ditched. So we were left essentially with an endorsement for TRC, which is a sub-mode, something you engage when you get to the hover, and two competing uh, contenders for the prize. But it was important to note that everything we've done so far was land-based. And uh, for Unified, which you know, seemed to be coming out on top, the, the major criticism was in the hover. Well, the most challenging environment for the hover was the ship. And also would TRC, which is a hover mode, continue to perform well if the deck was moving around underneath you? Uh, we were more or less out of money in the UK, uh, not completely. Um, and it was a non-trivial exercise, obviously, getting to the ship. But you can see from the image that we did, um, but the big news was that after that landmark trial, we had the re-engagement of the U.S. And that was the, it, even apart from the data, that was the biggest success, is that now we had made ourselves credible 
and the Programme Office and NAVAIR particularly, of course, who have responsibility for, for the Marine Corps and, and the Harrier and F-35B, uh, were fully engaged with us. The debate was still, I mean, we weren't done yet. The debate was still raging. There was still this, this hot-headed, um, you know, old-fashioned versus radical uh, camps uh, debate going on. But uh, it was very important that we had the engagement of the U.S. And what that meant is that uh, we were able to go to the ship. So why the ship, just briefly? Um, first of all, a rich uh, visual environment, close range. So you're hovering close to the superstructure. It's just here. And when it's rocking and rolling, it's coming towards you. You're um, over the deck at uh, about 30 feet, 20 or 30 feet, so much stronger visual cues than on a land-based hover. Uh, pitching, rolling deck, obviously, and pilot anxiety levels much higher because of those, uh, those things. So all of those, um, plus a very different task from land, all of those mean high pilot gain. And for those of you not in, in flight test space, it just means the pilot's stressed about it. And you're likely to flush out deficiencies and problems much more in a high pilot gain environment than otherwise. <clears throat> so quite simply, a ship VL task with motion, with a pitching rolling deck, is you know, the graduation exercise for a vertical landing airplane of any sort. So we went there. Uh, 2000, the pace, as I said there, began to pick up with the US now engaged. We were able to get some funding from the JSF program office, some funding from the MOD, and uh, obviously the MOD also provided a ship. Uh, which is very kind of them. So HMS Invincible, November 2000. Um, X-32, X-35 were already flying in California at this time. So just to put it in, uh, in sort of program context, the uh, uh, program was well underway. And we found some suitably stormy seas uh, to put the clause, the control laws, sorry for those um, who aren't familiar with the acronym there, control law, uh, the flight control software to the test. Very briefly, we'd improved the control laws. Uh, we'd also tried to get around fusions, confusion, by some doctrinal principles. So this is what you're going to do at this point. This is what you're going to do at this point. Don't mess it up, you know, as you would teach at an OCU. So we tried to mitigate some of those issues with doctrinal approach to, to how to fly the airplane. We had only four pilots at sea. You know, it was more limited time. You know, flying 65 sorties uh, on an embarked trial uh, was impossible. We had two weeks. So four pilots, a uh, mix of Harrier and non-Harrier. Uh, one of those non-Harrier pilots was uh, a, a U.S. Navy uh, Hornet pilot. Uh, Representative HQ handling qualities task criteria again. Um, very, very important that those handling qualities tasks that we use to assess the, the, the airplane's uh, characteristics were representative of what people would do for real. And so we even painted lines on the deck. You can see a standard Harrier approach, uh, decelerating transition with a shallow descent to a hover alongside. Again, because we were trying to stress unified, we didn't do the Royal Navy 90-degree translation across. We did a 45-degree translation because we wanted to make sure that our data would be believed. And uh, the captain even said uh, we could paint lines on his deck, so we painted some extra lines on his deck so the pilot could see uh, line-up markers and assess his performance, desired and adequate performance in the, in the task that we'd given him, uh, which was essentially what we, you know, we'd like you to be within five feet, but if you're within 10 feet, you're okay. If you're outside 10 feet, you failed. Um, <clears throat> so that's what we did. And uh, here's a video of an approach. You might recognize the voice. Um, just to show you the... Uh, I didn't, should have talked about this before. If you didn't pick it up from the previous video, this is a God's eye view of the pilot's knees in the rear cockpit. So that's uh, the, the, the knees, right hand on the stick and left hand on the throttle there and just the white, uh, white knee pad. Uh, in the video here, we've got airspeed. Uh, the ship will emerge out of the gloom. It's about there. So 158 knots at the moment, 143 knots ground speed. 
uh, and I think that's about 190 feet uh, rad alt. We're engaged, the flight control software's engaged, and we're in unified mode. So let me play it, and uh, you can listen to the soundtrack. Trim there as I push on the ball nicely. Water's going on now. Thanks. That's fine. I'm looking for, I'm actually going to ease off now. I'll have to leave it just for a minute. Yep, a little bit of a pull. Uh, looks like it might work out about right. Engine is good. Okay, thank you, Terry. And just going to hold that speed a little bit longer. Easing off on the diesel there for a little bit. So you saw when I said easing off on the diesel, I just moved my hand less far back. I just moved the throttle back forward a little bit. So it's fast, slow, up, down. Right out of 80-odd feet there. That's good. Sorry, that is a God's eye view velocity vector. So that is showing, it's like a planform velocity vector looking down from above. That's showing that we're moving forward and slightly drifting to the right. And as our velocity decreases, that vector will shrink down. Captured. Coming on in and setting the descent again there. A little bit further forward. And that's nicely in desired. Okay, let's trim out the speed. Okay, I need to trim forward quite a bit. The ship seems to be... At this stage, we had to trim in the ship speed, which is a slight artificiality of the research program, just to match the aircraft speed with the ship speed for translational rate command, obviously that needs a zero. It needs to know the zero for TRC is the ship speed, and so that's what I'm doing. <coughs> that's too much on the trimmer, a little few lags in that trimmer. Okay, engaging TRC now. TRC mode engaged. And moving gently across. Using the slew controller oh, on the throttle. Okay, there's barrow 40, 50 feet. See my velocity oh, vector sliding across the deck and forwards because the Keep ship's moving forwards. Good rate, yeah. And a little bit further forward, but this looks... This is just simplicity itself. A little bit further forward, I think. Having to, being just a little bit gentle on the thumb wheel, mainly out of concern for Terry than anything. Sioring straight. A little bit left and a little bit aft. A little bit aft. And I'm turning to move forward, so I'm going to hold the thumb wheel and start on down there. There's 300 set. Slight, uh, and what you can see, uh, it's difficult to see, but the, the tram line that's there, I'm right on the tram, I'm about six inches right of the tram line that I meant to land on. So, and the disconnect tone was just before touchdown then at about two or three feet because the wing was just dropping uh, to the left and uh, the, the Harrier is some of you may know, is, is, is unstable in ground effect, and, um, which is not a problem uh, for the F-35. But a uh, very successful trial, and um, this is what we learned from it. Uh, the unified hover, so hover, the, the, the time where unified control was, was most likely to fall down, uh, was predominantly level one handling quality. Some people gave it an HQR4, which is just below level one, but uh, it was predominantly most, uh, the, the vast majority of the ratings were, were level one, even in this most demanding environment of the ship with a moving deck and a 45, excuse me, a 45 degree cross-translation. Cross uh, fusion still provided some confusion. So even though we tried to get around the confusion by doctrinal teaching of how the pilot was to fly, it, it still didn't fix it completely. We found that we had to significantly lower our response types on the ship as well. I mean, it, it's, it's not... Uh, 
No surprise at all. With that increased pilot gains, we had to actually reduce the responsiveness of the aircraft for the ship environment. But TRC uh, remained and was, was endorsed as being a valuable uh, uh, and, 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 a, and a, the easiest mode to fly, even when the deck was, was pitching and rolling. But we still weren't ready. When I say we, probably the team as a whole, and I count myself in this too, we still weren't yet ready to give up on XY control in the hover because of the acknowledged advantage. If, if we were just building a machine to hover, you'd have an XY control. You'd have one lever that went forward, back, left, right. And so we, um, we wanted to see if we could fix fusion mode. Uh, we did a number of paper studies and a final land-based evaluation. So, interestingly, I've only really talked about approach and landing so far in, in, this, in this talk here, and it was the same in the research. People went after the biggest problem first, which is approach and landing. And it was years in the research before anyone stopped and thought, well, how are we going to take off? How are we going to do a vertical takeoff instead of a rolling takeoff? Um, how are we going to do a rolling vertical landing instead of a uh, vertical landing or, or slow landing? How, what, what's going to happen on the ground to the nozzles and so on? And uh, so we did that as well. Um, and, of course, the Unify, because of the simplicity of the concept, more or less takes it in its stride. You know, fast, slow, up, down. So if I wanted to do, I'm controlling the output variables. So if I want to do a vertical takeoff, I pull back on the stick. If I'm doing 100 knots and I'm ready to rotate and do a conventional takeoff or a semi-jet takeoff, I pull back on the stick. It's easy. Not so for some of the other modes where there are some, some complex, ah, but if I pull back on the stick then, I want something different to happen to when if I pull back on the stick you know, then and so on and so forth. And that led to the development of, uh, so we, we did all of that to make sure that we had all bases covered, uh, that we had a complete solution and not just a solution where you had to climb into the simulator at 10 miles on the approach, uh, but actually something that could go in a, in a, in a real airplane. Uh, and we developed something called enhanced fusion. Uh, and it was trialed in a land-based trial in 2001. Um, and we were able to deter, we were able to decide, we were able to judge it on the basis of a much smaller evaluation, not going to the ship, because we'd learned so much already. We knew about the constituent parts of what made good handling qualities or low workload at the ship and so on. So with that knowledge under our belt, uh, we felt we were able to evaluate enhanced fusion with just a simple uh, land-based trial. Uh, and really all enhanced fusion is, is uh, the stick is the same as normal fusion. So at 200 knots, it's flight path control, and that blends as I slow down into a fore-aft attitude control, and, and you just lose the, the up-down response on the stick as you slow down. The throttle, though, we made it like unified. So the throttle was always go fast, go slow. And that removed a lot of the confusion that, that, that pilots were getting in, uh, in fusion mode when, when everything was changing. And so that left us with, with one more variable we needed to control, and this is why you, you need a redundant inceptor in the so-called redundant inceptor solution. Uh, and that's the thumb wheel right here. So the thumb wheel was the so stick I've just covered, uh, throttle light unified, and the thumb wheel was the up-down control in the hover. So when I got to the hover, as a predominantly jet-borne, I can control my up and down on the thumb wheel. And it was very liked by the pilots who flew it. And we considered that it addressed all the major shortcomings of fusion mode whilst retaining the XY control in the hover on the stick that we were, we as a program were, were trying to retain it, and indeed personally too. So shortly before uh, the JSF contract award, which I think it was October 2001, it was definitely the autumn, uh, we had the considered opinion of uh, JSF program office, 
uh, and the UK MOD in the guise of its uh, test pilots and, and, and IPT, uh, the kinetic teams, uh, we all had a consensus and we presented it to the contractors. We considered that either mode were viable for JSF, enhanced fusion or unified. We recommended enhanced fusion. And I, remember, I still remember the debate uh, with, uh, with three of us as to which we were going to put above the other. And the reason we did so was political. Is we didn't think that unified was acceptable politically. And so we said, on the basis that both are viable, we better recommend this one because at least we're likely... And this is not just me. This is a government, a U.S. government, now their personnel too. We think that uh, Enhanced Fusion has a better chance of getting into the aircraft. Because don't forget, the JSF contractors had the choice. They were only producing the airplane to spec. It was up to them what they put in the airplane. So we recommended Enhanced Fusion. Now, the fun was about to start. Um, this slide was put up by one of the uh, Lockheed Martin flight test engineers to sort of encapsulate uh, everything that happened over a, more than just a summer, actually, but it came to a head in the summer. Something uh, should never really have happened. You know, we had, uh, uh, starting from a position of limited data, we'd, we'd done a lot of work. Opposing ideas had, had been brought together. The transatlantic divide had been washed over. Both governments were working together. Both governments had consensus. Uh, you know, the technical teams in the U.S. and in the U.K. We had 20 years of very expensive government research at NASA and at RAE, now Kinetic, uh, that had, had all funneled into where we got to at this point. We had a combined effort, multiple pilots, not just Harrier pilots. Uh, we had hard data that supported our conclusions um, and was supported by both governments. So why was there a problem? Uh, it should have been easy. It really should have. Um, but it wasn't, uh, and this is why um, an opposing idea emerged. Um, there were a small minority that still wouldn't accept XY control being split between two acceptors, um, or uh, enhanced fusion either. Now, I'm not quite really sure why, because where we got to that point, those who were still dyed-in-the-wool XY hover controllers, they were quite happy with enhanced fusion. People, everyone liked enhanced fusion. Uh, everyone liked Unified, really, but there was, those, those, you know, there was that hard sell to that, to that die-hard group. Uh, so the key protagonists behind this actually had not really been involved in the research that we'd done. They, they had, they'd had some involvement, um, but limited, uh, certainly not 20 years' worth. Um, but they were in key program positions, and this controller concept gained some traction. And you might well ask why. Well, I can only guess that it was the XY paradigm. They wanted the XY controller. Coupled with the fact that the F-35 now, the throttle top was, was set, was fixed. And so you didn't have the option to add things onto it. We couldn't be adding thumb wheels and so on at that point. That's my guess. Um, this, I know, obviously, I know, I know the people could ask them, but it's, it's too um, sensitive a subject, really, to be talked about, sadly. So we had yet more arguments. Uh, simulator comparisons of the competing solutions. Uh, campaigning and gerrymandering. There really was uh, some vicious persuasion and campaigning and, and all sorts of stuff going on. Uh, but ultimately, the program office convened a greybeard panel um, with both UK and US participants. Uh, Peter Nicholas, who uh, was actually the... Uh, you made, might have seen his, his name on the previous slide. I forgot to mention it. But Peter Nicholas proposed unified control at uh, RAE Bedford in 1980 or 1981, uh, along with uh, test pilot Peter Bennett at that time. Uh, so Peter Nicholas came was on the, on the uh, Greybeard panel. Uh, John was invited, sadly, was unable to make it. Um, and on the U.S. side, we had General Harry Blott, one of the early uh, Harrier pilots. We had uh, Jack Franklin from NASA, very highly respected, 
uh, great uh, engineer and scientist. And um, uh, the summer of discontent, it, it really was, but there was a, a final three or four day meeting in which all of this was laid out. And uh, tempers flared and, uh, and, and, and shouts were raised. But at the end of the day, uh, the Greybeards went away and they made a decision. And they came back with a decision for Unified. And a lot of us breathed a very significant sigh of relief because actually the, the alternative w was unworkable um, for reasons that I don't have time to go into and probably shouldn't go into anyway. Um, so we ended up with Unified. Enhanced Fusion was sort of sidelined by the whole process. Uh, and, and in some ways, the, the advantage of, of this, um, this whole chapter was that it enabled us to get back to actually really making a proper choice based on the quality of the concepts uh, and not on the, uh, the political angle that, well, Unified may still not be acceptable. So Unified was chosen. Uh, ultimately, it ticked all the boxes. Um, level 1 handling qualities in the very areas where it was supposed to perform least well. Uh, and that's the key thing. You know, everyone said, well, the hover, you can't hover like this. You have to hover like this. Well, that's not supported by the data. The data said we could hover with level 1 handling qualities uh, very nicely. Uh, modally and functionally, almost without blemish. Very, very simple. Normal mode. Uh, go up, go down, go fast, go slow. So it makes everything easy. And there were, as I mentioned, limited HOTAS choices in the F-35 at this stage. Uh, we're very late in the day, it's 2002 this decision was made. The program was well advanced. The throttle top and stick top were fixed. We had to work with what was there. And uh, very few of the HOTAS switches were um, triplex, which they needed to be, uh, to be used as flight control inceptors. And in fact, uh, we looked at statistics from the V-22, the V-22 thumb wheel, which is used for uh, um, nacelle motion. I think that is duplex or triplex. But I think every 80 hours they have a, uh, a jam or some kind of failure in their thumb wheel. But they've got two pilots that have switched to the other side, so it doesn't bother them. But we, we can't do that at night uh, on a stormy sea in a single pilot environment. So the availability of HOTAS inceptors also drove us uh, towards Unified, and that was a big part of the Greybeard's decisions. It was not the perfect solution because there is no perfect solution. Unified's a compromise. Every concept mode was some degree of compromise. Uh, there are some uh, cognitive issues that remain, particularly for Harrier pilots transitioning to it, um, which, which I can elaborate on in, in questions if you like. And XY control in the hover is, is still considered optimal. If I was building a vehicle that just hovered, I don't think there's any engineer that wouldn't give the pilot an XY controller on a single lever. But JSF uh, doesn't just hover. It has to go and drop bombs too. So did we make the right choice? I'll come back to that in just a second, if, if I can. If I haven't given the game away by some of the things I've said. Um, and, and, and actually back then, if I just pause for a moment and reflect, you know, I don't think any of us really knew whether we made the right choice or not. We made the best choice with the data available. Uh, but we weren't sure. We did carry on doing a little bit more research, which I'm just going to touch on in the last uh, couple of minutes, though, uh, even after this decision was made. We now supported the Joint Strike Fighter program with what was called the Unified Risk Reduction uh, Program. Um, In-flight trade studies for Lockheed Martin, looking at roll rates, looking at uh, response types, looking at uh, command gradients, those kinds of things uh, which help them out a lot. And of course, being able to do that in flight in a, in a real, realistic environment rather than a ground-based simulator, and in the early days they, they only had a fixed-based simulator as well, produces much more uh, robust data. Uh, the ship rolling vertical landing. 
Um, I can't start on that because it would take me about an hour. Uh, and that's a whole uh, another program that we, that we did, um, which was extremely rewarding and uh, maybe another talk another time. Uh, but the most significant contribution we made in that period to what we've been talking about so far today, which is the mainstream uh, flight control, was uh, TRC related. So inceptor moding for TRC in the hover was on a slew controller, if you remember, for Unified. Had to be. Um, a limited displacement controller, limited displacement stick or controller of any sort, is going to potentially give you challenges depending on, on what you're trying to control. And it did in this case. And while we were able to tune it up and make it really quite sweet, and certainly level one, we actually were able to solve the whole thing with, uh, with um, what I call the Eureka moment. So here's the, here's the process we went through. Uh, and actually, this was an idea of one of our Navair colleagues, um, and a great one. So implementation challenges with the XY slewer. So stick TRC, what a shame we can't have stick TRC. Wouldn't it be nice to have it, a large displacement, uh, easy to, um, to program and get the right response we want. But if we break the paradigm, let's think for a minute. Uh, we've got an active throttle in the JSF. We can control the force field, springs, detents. We can do whatever we want with the left-hand lever. So what about if we take stick TRC and we just take the fore-aft control from the stick and put it on the throttle. <gasps> it's not XY anymore. But we've already proven that we can hover very well without an XY controller for normal control. So why don't we do the same with TRC? And it really was this, you know, you know duh moment of, well, why didn't we think of this before? Because we, we'd addressed everything with Unified. We don't need to put it on a single hand. We can hover very well with left and right hands. And that's what we did with uh, uh, TRC mode. And uh, I'll give you a little... Um, video here, you'll see an airborne target. Again, I wish I had time to talk about it, but we, the, the, one of the last trials we did before we went to, to sea for the last time, actually, was with an aerial target, just to get the pilot's gains up uh, land base. So you'll see a great big target, uh, which is held up by a crane at about 100 feet. And I'll show you the whole thing from takeoff. Uh, Pete Wilson uh, with the program, as you may know, uh, British Aerospace pilot um, and the, the senior stable pilot uh, over at Pax River flying the F-35 now, and uh, Goatee a safety pilot. Wrong button. Okay, and stick on wrong some please. On. Arm up, please. Arm up. Right. Press and hold. Press and hold. Oop, I didn't mean to do that. <clears throat> oh dear, now let's try and fast forward. I was trying to stop it just to show you uh, the engaged, the unified mode, and that'll change to TRC when he engages TRC, height on the right, uh, speed on the left, and again that God's eye view velocity vector you'll see in the middle there. Uh, it's all going wrong. Press and hold. Press and hold. Do you have control? I have control, I track engage, I track we've got. Sorry, I track, same as TLC. Point it slightly to the right. Right to come forward to the board. Coming forward to the board. Switching the gripper on, gripper we've got. Nice gentle movement with about a five pound forward force. Releasing. Picked up the board spot on. Can't make that better. Going backwards to pick up the yellow line and then about to come laterally right. Happy. The other thing you'll see is the small ball here, centered around the uh, 
velocity vector is his command. So that's what he's commanding, and then the velocity vector grows to meet the command. Ah, don't know why it's not uh, pausing. In. I probably got the settings wrong. Right. Happy. Look at that. That's just giving us about four knots backwards, and that's about a it's about a pound per knot. It feels like so that's pretty good. Coming to the right along the lines, good little kick there. No doubt you've put in the lateral input, which is nice, good feedback. And then it just takes it off to about two degrees of pain. That's for four knots. That's probably about a five or six pound right force. Slightly low in height, but the gripper's got me nicely. Getting the rates. I'm just going to take gripper out and just adjust the Target is the black square lined up in the middle of the uh, black paddles, which it is exactly now. Coming to the right. Indeed, and then getting very used to the amount of anticipation required. This is the most accurate I've been all week, so it's phenomenally impressive. A bit more aggressive to the left, but ever so easy to get used to the anticipation required. That's just awesome. You can go across the boards again if you want. Can I? Yeah. Okay. I'm going to go fore and aft again if I may, from the pad. Okay. Coming out and now starting the forwards while we're still sorting out the lateral. That's really sweet, the way it just picks up a bit of pace and then it just... Slight overshoot, but it's ever so slight. That's just a question of getting used to the anticipation. Making small adjustments is also easy. Fore and aft. And now going back off to the centre of the pad. It's like doing a bloody dance, isn't it? Yeah, it takes us two-step, yeah? A two-step, exactly. We could be in Billy Bob's doing this. I'm going to be going around Billy Bob's doing this. It's actually very, very easy just to move around by about a foot at a time. Hard to imagine making it any more accurate than this. Right, coming on down. Happy resort. Right, coming on down. We're looking for 300 feet a minute initially. Down two. That's releasing at 300. And now I'm going to use the gripper at 80. There's the gripper. Good RPM increase. Captures us in about 10 feet. Kicking the gripper out again. I'd like to continue on down. Happy. Roger that. Looking for 300 feet a minute again. Coming on out there. And it just settles at about 320. No inputs. Not going to do anything all the way down. Toes clear. Thanks, Fred. Toes are clear. Thanks, eight miles over. We're about two feet right, maybe. No, a bit more than that now. Yeah. But I was tracking right, and I was happy with that. Two trees complete on the ground. Two trees great. Outstanding. Right, so we didn't do one of those longitudinal position cuts. We did do. The video goes on because when we cut this, we wanted to hear everyone. Um, here, Wizard, rather, giving an HQR1 uh, to many aspects of this task. Now, HQR1s are very, very seldom given by anybody, and uh, lots of superlative comments follow, but uh, time is moving on, so I, I won't play the last bit. Um, so, it was indeed the final answer. Um, we evaluated it sh ashore, as you see, with that crane, and we took it to sea in 2008 on the final uh, VARC trial. Um, and this uh, TRC methodology on split levers actually completed the whole unified strategy, if you like, and, uh, and, uh, and it was done and dusted. Uh, Lockheed Martin uh, did a great job uh, implementing it in the airplane, and uh, the airplane is flying with unified and split TRC today. So were we right? One more video. Now, the RAF claim that flying the latest Harrier jump jet is as easy as driving a car. Well... We were a bit doubtful about that, so to put it to the test, we sent them our science editor, Lawrence McGinty. Now, Lawrence actually can't drive a car, 
but despite that, they still let him loose at the controls of a multi-million pound jet fighter. Here's what happened when Lawrence became our very own top gun. I walked across the tarmac with test pilot Chris Gopka, but I still couldn't believe it. They were going to let me fly a Harrier. As they strapped me in the rear cockpit of the two-seater experimental plane, I kept telling myself the new control system made flying the Harrier easy. I'm fat, I'm 50, I'm trussed up like a chicken, I can't even drive a car, but I'm going to have a go at driving this. It was reassuring that Chris, who's flown Sea Harriers for ages, could take control instantly if I screwed up big time. He flew the takeoff, and it took my breath away. Oh my God! Only a few minutes into the flight, and Chris hands control to me. Press and hold, this is the engage button now. Yep. On the interceptor, I'm pressing and holding now. Okay, you have control of the airplane. Okay. So if you want to just push the nose down a bit, you might as well push the nose down. The new system is easy. Push forward on the left grip to go faster, pull back to slow down. On the right, forward to go down, backwards to climb. Left to go left, right to go right. After five minutes of flying the Harrier, then came the tricky bit, bringing it into a hover and landing vertically. Here we are, we're jet boarding an aeroplane, which is quite spectacular, and we're at 100 feet. So all I need you to do now is push forward on the right stick. Okay, just ease off on that rate of descent, thank you. Just keep coming down there, there you go, that's perfect. Keep coming down, keep coming down, keep coming down. We're on the markers, we're close enough to the markers for me to be happy. Keep coming down, keep coming down, keep coming down, keep coming down, keep coming down. And you've got it now. I've got it now, many congratulations. I don't believe it! That was, um, wow! Well How do you find sex interesting after this? <laughs> so that question, did we make the right decision, it's not even asked today. Uh, the first embarked trial on the USS Wasp, uh, a couple of years ago now, I think, um, it was a Hornet pilot, never flown a Harrier in his life, never hovered in his life. Before he hovered the F-35, he did envelope expansion trials on the Wasp. Um, his successor uh, recently did the same for the recent night trial back on the WASP. Um, Non-stable experienced pilots, and they're countless non-stable experienced pilots now flying the B in stable mode. Um, Glenn could tell us more, just come back from the program, but uh, USAF pilots uh, with F-16 uh, backgrounds, they do a simulator ride, they do a single fan flight in the airplane, and then straight into flight test. That second uh, um, USS Wasp Hornet pilot, his first, his fan flight, stable control laws are brilliant, he said. And uh, a senior test pilot in the program. And um, just finish on this story. Um, this guy was one of the diehard anti-unified people of years back. I'm not going to tell you who he is or even which nationality he is. Um, and uh, he was dead set against it. And we had many, many arguments over this bit. We remain good friends, obviously. Um, about two years ago, we were at SCP together, and I got a message, oh, well, I need to talk to you, I need to talk to you. And for one reason or another, we never met up. So um, some months later, I was in PAX. This is a uh, year and a half ago now. Um, and so we've, we finally met up, met up because he was at PAX River. And uh, so we were having... Uh, sat down, dinner, holiday people, usual, usual detachment dinner in, uh, in, a, in a nice uh, pub there. And he said, I've got to tell you something. 
I, was, I was almost felt like a teenager, you know, when you're trying to tell your girlfriend that you love her for the first time. And he said, I've got to tell you something. He said, you were right. And um, that's the proof of the pudding, that, uh, that someone who was a diehard opposer of it is now, you know, a sold-out supporter of Unified Mode. And it really shouldn't have been that complicated a decision because, after all, Unified Mode is just normal mode. Um, there are... I'm just going to play this video in a sec. There's a few people in the room as well who are on the programme. There's Fred over there, John, Nasher, Glenn, uh, and John Farley, of course, who, if, if anyone who should have been opposed to radical change, it would be Mr. Harry himself, but John has been an unstinting supporter of what we've done uh, throughout the years. So I'd like to say thanks to John and, uh, and uh, well done chaps. Here's uh, the last bit. Wrong button again. I'm happy to take any questions. Is that better? The, the trials there at, uh, at Boscombe, I was, I was away doing some ground job at the time. Um, the, the, the risk, you know, risk analysis, the mitigations for... Um, Sitting there at 1,200 feet, 60 knots, you know, putting in the full negative spin controls, uh, and trusting the system to work. And I guess, you know, can you just just describe a bit the what was keeping you safe was the firm belief that if the system didn't work, then the safety pilot could take over. Is that is that yes? But of course, it was? the classic build-up approach as well. So we started with very small inputs and built up larger and larger inputs to make sure that the monitor was, was, was breaking us off early enough each time. So it wasn't just go in and hope. It was, it was the classic build-up approach to flight test, just like any normal envelope expansion, really. And was there ever a time when it gave you some worries? Um, personally, no, but for Johnny, yes. There was one sortie where we got to a slightly higher bank angle than, than he liked, um, um, and we did rein in the limit slightly as a result of that. Um, we, 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 we were in no particular problem, but it took him by surprise a little bit. I think we got to about... 40 degrees of angle, Fred? 35 or 40? Not a great deal. Um, we had plenty of height and just let the nose drop and, and, and recover. So. so, yeah, more than Fred wanted. But uh, otherwise, no, I don't think there were any scares with the monitor. It was, uh, it was a good piece of software. Yeah, shaky. Justin, um, <coughs> have we got any feedback yet how ex-Harrier pilots are finding it transitioning to uh, Unified? And yes. Um, well, I mean... That guy who, who I quoted there, obviously, is a Harrier guy. Um, and, um, Any of the sort of more junior guys who are coming through who have maybe done a tour or two? Because I do remember I, that was one of yeah, the concerns. It's a good question. I can't quote any similar, similar quotes. Uh, all I know is it's, it's a non-subject right now. No one talks about, oh, what's this? It's just how it is. It's one of those amazing things. You know, for a while, it's madness, and then it's grudgingly accepted, and then... You know, five years later, everyone's forgotten that there was ever a question over it. So um, I can't give you concrete quotes, but uh, it's, it's a non-issue. Everyone loves it. 
Hi, Tony Purton. I was a director of contracts in the MOD buying things like this, tornado and whatnot. I want to ask you a sort of political question. What the hell did you think when the government tried to cancel this version of this aeroplane? Oh. Some of my friends could, uh, could, could, could answer that question better than I. I went into depression for about six months because it, uh, um, it made so little sense to anyone who knew anything about the aeroplanes. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I don't have any inside knowledge. I just read the press like anyone else. You know, I, I believe there was a senior dark blue who, who, who wanted to go this way and, and, and had a ready ear in, in a newly elected government to overturn a previous government's policy. Um, but when you look at the facts, and, 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 and even at senior levels um, of the military, people who should know, even you know, in, in, the, um, in the brevet part of the services, the, the people who didn't fully understand uh, the implications of, of going to a conventional uh, variant, uh, the engineering limitations on, on our ships because of their size, and the cost. And there was just this you know, superficial comparison of more payload, uh, more fuel, less pale, less fuel, this must be better, um, which is actually nonsense when you start to consider, for example, the uh, organic tanker requirement. So if we follow the US model, and we haven't flown conventional carriers for, what is it, 20, 30 years, nearly 30 years? Anyway, 76, whenever it was. I can't add up that quickly. Um, so we, we really have no option but to follow the American. We, we've lost our ability to do it, so we would be following uh, US um, CONOPS and, and, and the LSO school way of doing things. Now, at night, they have approximately 30% of their strike assets in tankers. So for every 10 airplanes that go out with weapons, they have about three with air-to-air -air refueling pods on them. It's less in the daytime. So for a country with a limited amount, so you, temp, so you now take 30% of your strike assets away, effectively, in terms of if you're doing a payload range comparison. No one ever thought of that. No one ever thought of the fact that the F-35C is not tanker equipped. They've even, I believe, pulled the, I'm not sure, I don't know. But it's certainly not a tanker aircraft. It's not being, uh, the US are not producing a tanker variant of the F-35C. So the UK would have had to pay Lockheed Martin to do that for us. And contractors being contractors, will, will their, their job is to make money, and they will make money when, when you've got no options, they're not going to give you a knockdown price. Um, I don't know what that would have cost. You'd probably be able to guess better than I, but it would have had lots of noughts on the end. Um, so suddenly, you know, even you start looking at some basic facts which were totally, as far as I'm aware, uh, not considered when the decision was made. It was, it was an astounding decision. But then it, there were lots of astounding decisions made at the time, so it was just another one. Um, and I think it, the, the, the final, in the final analysis, the fact that we, the government made a very embarrassing, very embarrassing reversal uh, is, is testament to just how open and shut the case was when you actually looked at it. And I still believe, even at the end of the day, because I read the paper, they hadn't fully considered all the implications. Can I make a, just make a comment on that? What interested me most was that when the government reversed its decision, uh, I think the National Audit Office congratulated the Ministry of Defence for reversing the decision in the fastest time that they've ever reversed the decision. <laughs> and it also reminded me, I was on a TSR2 project uh, many, many years ago. Mountbatten wanted TSR2 cancelled and buying the Buccaneers so he could spend the bloody money on his ships. This is politics, and this is what goes on. Mm. And uh, I've been looking at this for the last 50 years, and the picture doesn't seem to have changed a great deal.
I'm Martin Nash from uh, MBDA. Um, the Americans, did they get do any work with the AV8B variant that they that they've retained on on flight controls in this way? Are you talking about the AV8B research aircraft? Yeah. Yes, they did. Um, you might have seen a picture of it in one of my slides earlier. There was uh, a single seat research aircraft that uh, that NASA Ames implemented their strategies on although it was somewhat compromised by the fact that you had to be safety pilot and experimental pilot all in one. So uh, you had uh, standard Harrier controls, and then the advanced controls were, were, were thumb wheels and mini interceptors uh, mounted on, on top of the main controls. So it was a, a compromise, but it's all they had available. They wanted to get a two-seater, uh, which obviously you needed, but, um, but they, did a, they did a great job. I, mean, you know, I have a lot of respect for, for what NASA achieved. Uh, they did some great work. Thank you very much. Hi there. Um, just wondering, with the F-35B variant coming into service with the Navy and the Air Force in the next few years, what um, further research are you still doing with the project? Well, you can tell from my job description that, uh, that, that, that I've had to move on, and, and all of us have. Um, it's a sad thing, actually, when you, when you finish your work uh, and move on. Uh, it's, it's sad on the one hand because it was great work and that uh, we all look back on fondly, but on the other hand, it's quite satisfying to know that we actually completed it. Uh, and there was no more to do, certainly for, for Joint Strike Fighter. Um, there is lots of work to do in flight control. In fact, if, I could, if you could indulge me, one of my backup slides. Now, I talked about the, the question that's not being asked is, uh, is whether we made the right decision for F-35, but the question we should be asking is what about all the other powered lift platforms out there? And exactly the same preconceptions. In fact, I have a talk that I deliver to my ETPS students about avoiding pilot preconceptions. And exactly the same problems we faced in, uh, in, in our work and, and which led to a much more protracted road to the, to the final, final answer and the, and the need to actually prove things to people with hard data. Uh, the same things are going to happen because nearly all of these, and I, I work with rotary wing pilots and I love them dearly, um, but nearly all of these programs are, are filled with rotary wing pilots. If you think powered lift, if you're the, if you're the average manufacturer out there, or developer or entrepreneur, you think powered lift, you think <coughs> rotary wing pilots because they know how to hover, don't they? Well, <clears throat> rotary wing pilots are going to bring a rotary wing background. And you can look at things like, uh, like you know, these new compound helicopters, um, uh, not to mention tilt rotor. I mean, do you know the, um, the V-22 has a throttle? So it's Harrier-like. So if I want to uh, go up in the hover, I push the throttle forward, as opposed to a collective in a helicopter. Helicopter, if I want to go up in the hover, I pull the collective. And in the Harrier or in the V-22, I push the throttle. Well... This airplane, and that's because the, the general in charge of the Marine Corps, a friend of John's, at the time was a Harrier pilot. So he said, we're not having a collective, we're having a throttle. And uh, so they did. Uh, the, this uh, civil tilt rotor, guess what it has? A collective, because they're a rotoring personnel. So who's right? I'm not saying one's right and one's wrong, but they can't both be right. And uh, what, the, even more so when you get to compound helicopters, all the rotor disc is, you might argue, before I get too, too arrogant about this, you might argue that all the rotor disc is is, 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 a, is, a, is a powered lift and wing combined. And uh, there is a whole research debate to be had for the uh, plethora of emerging powered lift vehicles um, that we should be looking at uh, things with a blank sheet of paper. 
Now, I don't know whether Unify would suit any of those. I'm not saying it would. I don't know because you only know if you do the experimentation, which is what we tried to argue eventually successfully for all those years, is that we can't sit in armchairs and make decisions about what's good and what's bad. You have to go and evaluate with very carefully set up ex uh, objective experimentation, get the data, and then you'll know. So I don't know, but I do know that we should be thinking about it for all those vehicles. And I fear that at the moment we're not. There's just this assumption that if it goes up and down, you're going to have a collective, and, and all of those do. Does that answer your question? I probably went off on a tangent a little bit. Well, um, thank you very much, Justin. Having watched uh, Jim Schofield, um, I think on, or on YouTube, I think doing the first UK Royal Air Force vertical landing on a carrier very recently, um, and the comments he made afterwards about the control laws, it's not only great to see we're going to get a great aircraft in service, but that a lot of it has come from British engineering and software design and um, the flight test skills in the UK. So um, I'd like to... Uh, on behalf of the Royal Aeronautical Society Flight Test Group, thank Justin for coming along tonight and doing a great presentation. Um, we've got the next lecture, which will be A400M Flight Test Programme, which will be presented by Ed Strongman, the Chief, test pilot, Chief Military Test Pilot at Airbus, and that's on the 14th of November, so hopefully... Uh, Lots of you can come along to that. Thanks for coming tonight.